and welcome to See the Music. This is Andrew Litton, Music Director of New York City Ballet, and our program today is about Balanchine's 1951 ballet, La Valse. It is set to the music of French composer Maurice Ravel. Ravel wrote a masterpiece called La Valse in 1920, but Balanchine wanted more of a good thing and included Ravel's earlier tribute to the waltz, Valse Noble et Sentimental, from 1911 for his ballet, all under the title of La Valse. 1911 was a banner year in music history, seeing the premiere of Stravinsky's masterpiece Petrushka and Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe, my favorite of all his works. Both ballets were written for the great ballet impresario Serge Diaghilev, who had a great knack of commissioning the greatest composers of the day. Meanwhile, over in Germany, 1911 saw the premiere of the wonderful opera by Richard Strauss, Der Rosenkavalier, a rollicking tribute to Vienna and the waltz. Ravel was fascinated by the waltz form, and as early as 1906, he started writing a piece called Wien, or Vienna, that would eventually become La Valse 14 years later. But first he decided to write a pianistic tribute to two sets of waltzes written 80 to 85 years earlier by Franz Schubert, bearing the titles Valse Noble and Valse Sentimental. Schubert differentiated between his noble and sentimental waltzes by publishing them separately. Ravel does no such thing, and there's no acknowledgement as to which are the noble waltzes and which are the sentimental ones. In fact, with all due respect to Ravel and his good intentions, there is no similarity between his Schubert tribute and the original, except that they share a name and are in waltz form. The critics at the premiere were unimpressed. Ravel's complex harmonies disturbed them, and some even thought the piece was meant to be a parody. Fortunately, by the time Balanchine chose the music for his ballet in 1951, it had become well-loved and admired. Ravel was a notoriously slow composer. He was fastidious and painstaking and crafted his music with the precision of a Swiss watchmaker, as his friend Stravinsky used to say. The result was that Ravel left us with quite a small output, only 85 works, of which a mere 60 are performable, but of unquestionably exquisite music. One of Ravel's greatest talents was his orchestration, and there may be no more famous orchestration from the early 20th century than Ravel's 1922 transcription of Mussorgsky's Pictures and an Exhibition for orchestra. Many of Ravel's compositions started life as piano compositions before he decided to rewrite them for orchestra. Roland Manuel, one of Ravel's close friends, said, the metamorphosis of piano pieces into symphonic works was a game for Ravel, a game played to perfection, so that the transcription outdid the charm of the original. In reality, he is with Stravinsky, the one man in the world who best knows the weight of a trombone note, the harmonics of a cello, or a pianissimo tam-tam in the relationships of one orchestral group to another. Burnett James, in his biography of Ravel, wrote, he minutely studied the ability of each orchestral instrument to determine its potential, putting its individual color and timbre to maximum use. So, let's have a short look at the eight waltzes that make up Ravel's Valse Noble. Here to demonstrate on the piano is one of New York City Ballet's star pianists, Alan Moverman. The opening waltz explodes in wild frenzy, 
and Balanchine chooses to use this short waltz as a kind of overture. Balanchine describes the music to the second waltz as soft and beguiling. Ravel considered himself a classicist, and one certainly feels that in the elegance of the third waltz. The waltz is musically quite interesting because Ravel writes a melodic sequence that he will reuse nine years later in La Valse. This is one reason why Balanchine's combining of these two different compositions is so brilliant, because they are musically related and actually sound like they should be performed together. Here is the fourth waltz, and by the way, Ravel uses bitonality that's when one normal sounding chord against another normal sounding chord, but played together, they sound completely dissonant. This he uses in the same year as Stravinsky so famously used it in his Petrushka. Here Ravel places E major against C sharp minor.
Waltz number five, Balanchine describes as beguiling and having a subdued and romantic contrast. What a perfect reaction to this music. Waltz number six is another contrast. The music alternates between the time signatures 3-2 and 6-4, giving a restless but also very Spanish feel to this waltz. Waltz number seven is the most volatile of the set of waltzes with two large musical climaxes. Here is from near the beginning so you can experience the buildup of intensity. Now, Alan, play us this passage from the later composition, La Valse. Uncanny resemblance, huh? Another reason why Balanchine's merging of these two different works of music works so well. Waltz number eight is the epilogue of Valse Noble and combines material from the other waltzes in a bittersweet and uneasy sort of way. Perfect segue to La Valse.
Now the stage is set for Ravel's orchestral tour de force, La Valse. It was premiered on December 12, 1920. He called it a choreographic poem, and it was commissioned by Serge Diaghilev. Sadly, Diaghilev rejected it, saying, it is not a ballet, it is a portrait of a ballet. He went on to say it was, quote, a masterpiece, but too virulent. Ravel, obviously hurt, ended their relationship, and luckily, La Valse went on to become a very popular concert work. Legend has it that when Diaghilev and Ravel met again five years later in 1925, Ravel refused to shake Diaghilev's hand, and Diaghilev challenged Ravel to a duel. Allegedly, some friends persuaded Diaghilev to back off, and he did, but the two men never spoke again. I feel this work, Ravel wrote, is a kind of apotheosis of the Viennese waltz, linked, in my mind, with a fantastic world of destiny. At the top of the score, he wrote, through rifts of swirling clouds, waltzing couples may be seen. One by one, the clouds vanish. A huge ballroom filled by a circling mass is revealed. Two enormous crescendos form the foundation of the composition. The first half is fairly normal and uncontroversial. It is only in the second half where everything goes horrifyingly wrong and becomes truly macabre. Many contemporaries read into this not-so-happy-an-ending as Ravel's reaction to the effects of post-World War I Europe. Ravel flatly denied any correlation and said in 1922 that it doesn't have anything to do with the present situation in Vienna, and it also doesn't have any symbolic meaning in that regard. Composer George Benjamin wrote of Lavalse, its one movement design plots the birth, decay, and destruction of a musical genre, the waltz. It begins with the swirling mists depicted by the double basses, who actually start playing a pattern that sounds like jaws. All the instruments playing at the beginning are lower range bass instruments, which helps us feel the murkiness that Ravel describes. We only hear fragments of the melody. Eventually, the harps announce the entrance of the violins and the first statement of the work's main theme. That, if you were paying attention, was taken from Ravel's earlier composition, Vals Noble. Next, we have a series of variations passed around the orchestra, starting with the oboe. The next melody is suddenly and aggressively introduced by the brass, timpani, and percussion. 
Then there's a lovely tune in the violins that goes like this. melodies are developed and transformed, but even on the return of the same music, Ravel constantly changes his instrumentation, making the work seem to be constantly evolving. The final buildup is truly horrifying, with the entire orchestra blazing with glory. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Um, one last quote about La Valse by Ravel's friend Paul Landormy. He said, The most unexpected of the compositions of Ravel, revealing to us heretofore unexpected depths of romanticism, power, vigor, and rapture in this musician whose expression is usually limited to the manifestations of an essentially classical genius. So, Alan Moberman, thank you so much for doing the lion's share of this podcast on the piano, playing all those La Valse and Valse Noble excerpts. Uh, I've never played either piece on the piano, so I just the thought of trying to work up a bit for this podcast was too daunting for me. <laughs> so I appreciate you, you running the gauntlet. Tell me, though, how many years have you been here at City Ballet? I think I've been here about 26 years. Wow. And how did you start was it is there was there an audition how did that work how does that yeah work? yeah i i auditioned first for the music director uh -huh. who was gordon belsner at right. that time and then i had to play a trial period for i think about three or four weeks wow. and then they hired me i was very happy yeah of course and looking back what are some of the highlights if you can think of them in the last 26 years well um I think, like, I enjoyed when I got to play the Shostakovich concerto with you, Maestro. I, I, the <laughs> you say Shostakovich all the right things, second Alan. one. You say all the right things. <laughs> no, no, well, no, I, it was a wonderful opportunity to play the piece uh, and uh, with orchestra. Um, and I would say that learning more about Stravinsky was probably the most interesting thing working here because most musicians don't really play very much of Stravinsky's output. But in the ballet, we play, I don't know, 30 pieces or so. Yeah. 
there's, there's something like 22 Stravinsky works in the active repertoire, and we've done something like 32. And you know, um, it's it's quite extraordinary. But of course, that relationship that uh, Balanchine and Stravinsky had was super special. And it wasn't necessarily that all those ballets were choreographed for Balanchine, but Balanchine, of course, was a master at taking pieces of music that maybe didn't have such a successful shelf life mm -hmm. and turning them into masterpieces by choreographing them. Right, And right. Uh, you know, one perfect case in point is the ballet we call Rubies, which is the Stravinsky piece Capriccio for piano and orchestra. And it is never played in the concert hall. I mean, I can't remember a time I've seen it on a mm -hmm. program. But as the middle section of the ballet Jewels, it's an absolute masterpiece. And in fact, the costumes alone get the audience excited when the curtain first, first goes up and everybody sees all that ruby sparkling everywhere. Um, extraordinary case of, of a ballet improving a piece, as it were, or at least <laughs> the, the performance possibilities of the piece. What are some of the other things you've, you've really enjoyed playing in the pit or during performances? Oh, I enjoy playing, there's a Four Pieces for Piano by Philip Glass, which is a wonderful piece and, and quite complex for that composer. I enjoy playing that on stage in Justin Peck's choreography increases. I would say rehearsal-wise, I think a lot of Stravinsky pieces, I do, I do very much enjoy discovering them. Oh, Orpheus. I really love playing the ballet Orpheus, which is not played very much as a musical piece, I don't think, no. in concert. But it's, it's, it's very, uh, very satisfying musically. It's ironic to me that it's not actually even done here at New York City Ballet very often either, and yet it's our logo, you know? Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, but I mean, I guess symbolically it does, you know, you know, that was the sort of epicenter of the Balanchine-Stravinsky partnership. Um, so we've all endured the most unforgettable 18 months. I, I now know what full retirement will feel like, uh, even though, as you know, Alan, conductors don't retire. We're just like French Bordeaux. We go on and on and on <laughs> until we're bad. <laughs> but um, but uh, I only had four conducting weeks between March of 2020 and, and now. So obviously, I'm incredibly excited to be back at work. And of course, it's back at work with a vengeance. Uh, this week, besides conducting opening night, I'm also going to London for some recording sessions. Oh, wow. And then back for next week's uh, premieres of the new ballets. So it's kind of insane to go from nothing to, to something. But did you manage to keep busy during? Did you find work? <laughs> What's, well, what were it was, you, you know, as, as some, of, some of other musicians felt, it, it was a kind of sabbatical. Yeah. And, and uh, without the hubbub of the daily expectations and, and, uh, and so on, it, 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 you can just take a look at your playing and your relationship to music. And also, you find out a little bit who you are when you're not going crazy every day, like, oh, what do I have to play in a couple hours? And, and that was incredibly valuable with also family, you know, to spend time with uh, my daughter, who's now in college, but stayed home for a year. And so I got to be with her the entire year. That's fantastic. Yeah, so, so there, there was, a, there was always definitely a, a silver lining to these clouds. Yeah, uh, I hope uh, so. For yeah. me, I, I, I got married and have a baby. That's something. <laughs> so corona, corona marriage and a 
COVID baby. Oh, but, um, so wonderful. But, and, and, you know, like you said, it's been amazing to spend the first nine months with this yeah. lovely little girl, um, watching her develop every day. And, you know, my first two children who are much older, they were, I was gone. I was on the road all but eight weeks of the year, you know, so I missed everything. So it's like I was given another chance, which is really quite special. Um, well, anyway, um, I guess we've gotten way off track with uh, New York City Ballet, but um, I, I just thought it was important for our listeners to, to meet you. You've been, I, I guess I, it's fair and not condescending to call you a veteran of the company at this point. No, it's uh, nice. Considering I've only been here six years. Um, but uh, really, you are one of the linchpins, mainstays of this organization. And um, I, again, I, I don't think that civilians realize how much time and effort the pianists at the ballet spend, the hours a day. And then, very often, you're pressed at the service in the performances playing a solo. So not only have you been rehearsing with the dancers for six hours, but then you've got to step up your game and play a concerto. And it's just an incredibly daunting amount of work. And you guys do it with such ease and charm and whatever, whatever you, antagonism you might be feeling, you never show it. <laughs> and, uh, and I just think it's great. And I really enjoyed getting to know you over these last few years. And I look forward to the rest. You know, it's going to... Yeah. Gonna, Thanks so a lot. Great. Well, likewise. It's uh, so great to be back at work and, and enjoying the great music. Thank you, Alan Moverman. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for another edition of See the Music. <laughs>